screen are the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And those are the words that this whole series that we're going through at Daybreak right now are based on. When love speaks from the cross, these are the words that he said. And the reason that I think that it's important for us to really look at these words is because when you realize the effort that Jesus went to to say those words, you realize there must have been something important that he wanted us to hear through those words. As I did a little study um, leading up to this series, I learned that in a crucifixion, especially in the way that Jesus was crucified with the piercings through his, his arms, in order to get enough air into your lungs to be able to project, to speak in a way that people can hear you, it would have been incredibly painful to speak. Because in order to do that, you would have had to push up on your arms that were pierced in order to get enough air into your lungs to be able to project those words out. And so when we realized that Jesus seven times on the cross spoke words, and some of them were ones that were prayers to his father that he wouldn't have had to have said out loud, but yet he chose to go through the effort and the pain of pushing up to get enough air into his lungs so that he could say those words so that they could be recorded says something. And so that's why we want to look at these words that Jesus spoke from the cross, when love speaks. So far in the series, we've talked about Father, forgive them. And we talked about forgiveness and what that means. In the second week of the series, last week, we talked about today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus' words to the thief who hung next to him on the cross. And today we're going to be talking about when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I think we all know what it feels like to be forsaken at some point or another, right? Because forsaken means to be alone or abandoned or deserted. And I think we've all had that feeling at one point or another in our lives, right? I know that um, for me, as a teenager in high school, I would frequently be waiting outside the school for my parents to pick me up, and they frequently would forget the teachers would come out and say, uh, you, you okay? I'm like, yeah, just waiting for my mom. And inevitably, the school secretary would be the one who drove me home. I think she's still on my Christmas list. I felt a little abandoned because my parents would always forget to come pick me up from school. Um, I know that my brother has had times when he's felt abandoned. Um, one Halloween, my dad and the neighbor kid's dad decided that they were gonna help the kids pull a, a Halloween prank. And so what they chose to do was, and this is really cruel, I'm like, why did you do this? But what they chose to do was they took a little scarecrow type thing that looked a little like a little trick-or-treater, stuffed this thing together, hung it from a rope over a tree that was next to the road. And when cars would come by, they would drop this thing down in front of the approaching car, causing the car to have to slam on its brakes to avoid hitting the trick-or-treater in the road. This is a cruel, cruel trick. I don't know why they did it. But anyway, this was the, the thing that they were doing. Well, it was my dad, the neighbor kid's dad, and the other older kids from the neighborhood that were participating in this. And they took turns holding the rope and dropping it in front of these cars that were passing by. And most of the cars just kind of stopped, slid down, and went on. Well, the one time when my brother was hanging onto that rope, a guy pulled up or was coming down the road, dropped the thing in front of him, he didn't find it so funny. The guy slams on his brakes and gets out of the car, approaching the tree where everyone was. Well, what happens? Everyone takes off, dad and neighbor kids, dad included, takes off running away, leaving my brother standing there, holding the rope, bearing the full fury of this man who was not so pleased or amused by their Halloween prank. Now, my little Mennonite dad apparently had a little evil streak that ran through him. But anyway, my brother can now laugh about that moment where he felt very alone and forsaken, but he still brings it up. Like, Dad, remember that time that you just left me hanging there holding the rope when that guy was yelling at me? But sometimes when we look back at those things, I've long since forgiven my parents for all of the times that they left me sitting at the school and picked up. My brother is able to get past the, the forsaken nature of the Halloween prank where he was holding the rope. And sometimes we can look back at those things when we, those times when we felt alone or abandoned and we can just laugh them off, see them for what they were. But there are other things that happen in life that we can't really laugh off that way, right? Times when we felt that forsakenness in a really deep and painful way. There was nothing funny about it at all. We all know that feeling 
at one point or another in our lives, knowing what it feels like to just feel alone and forsaken. And perhaps for you, it was a time when someone you loved betrayed you. Or maybe it was a time when you felt rejected. Or maybe it was a time when you got a diagnosis and you just felt completely alone in that. Or maybe it was a loss that you were experiencing. Or maybe it was, who knows, any one of a hundred other things that you just felt alone in that moment. And this is what we're going to be talking about today, that very real pain that all of us have experienced at one point or another of knowing that there was a season when it just felt like I was alone. It felt like God had gone silent on me. And we're saying, where are you, God? And that's what Jesus felt like when he hung on the cross and he said these words, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to me, I think this phrase from the cross is probably the most haunting and the most disturbing of all of the words that Jesus spoke from the cross because it goes to the heart of what all of us have felt at one point or another saying, God, where are you? Now, in order to understand the whole scenario that was taking place here, I want us to get the larger picture of the scene that was unfolding. And so I want to read to you from scripture um, the the scene that was kind of leading up to when Jesus spoke these words. And so I'm going to read that from Mark chapter 15, and then Justin Howard is going to come, and he's going to read a monologue that is from the perspective of someone who could have been in the crowd that day. So, Reading from Mark chapter 15. They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one in his right and one in his left, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a morbid sense of curiosity that made us stop. We were on our way to the city on the first day of the festival when we noticed the crowd watching as three men hung nailed to Roman crosses. It was a gruesome way to die, hanging by the hands and feet, with the additional humiliation of being stripped of clothing, and slowly dying as breathing became increasingly impossible. For all its horror, we were drawn to take a closer look at the suffering inflicted on these men. I was embarrassed to be watching, yet unable to turn away. It was clear as I looked at the crowd that there was something unusual about the man in the center. Some were hurling insults at him. Three women stood weeping near him. He'd clearly been flogged, the bloody stripes giving witness to the cruelty of his captors. I asked what he had done wrong. Someone in the crowd answered, that was Jesus, the man from Galilee, who many believed would lead the revolt to expel the Romans. But his way of dealing with the Romans was to tell his followers to show them kindness. He seemed more intent on revolting against the Sanhedrin. It was they who convinced Pilate that he was a threat to Roman rule. So here we are with a pacifist preacher crucified as a threat to the emperor. The crowd around Jesus was restless. Some of the merchants seemed to gloat that he who had cast them out of the temple courts a few days earlier was now getting his just reward. I'd like to say that as we watched this scene unfold, our hearts were filled with compassion, but it was quite the opposite. 
The anger and the venom of the others was like an infection rapidly spreading through each one of us. My friend Levi was the first to join in the act, saying, He got what he had coming to him. He preached salvation, but look at him now. This friend of drunkards and prostitutes couldn't save a soul. My friend Jacob looked up at Jesus and shouted, Who do you think you are anyway? Some kind of Messiah you turned out to be. Look at you, naked, bleeding, dying. Levi picked up the refrain. I'm sick just looking at you. Get it over with already. As I listened to them shouting, hate began to well up in me. This man hadn't done anything to me. Yet as the others were shouting, I found myself filled with anger. I walked up to him and said, some Jew you are. You make me sick. Tell us to love our enemies. This is what happens to people who love their enemies. Listen, you're a nobody. And then I spat at him. I don't know why I did it. He hadn't done anything to me. In fact, by all accounts, he was a good man. But somehow, hearing the priest and religious leaders mocking him, my friends hurling insults at him, and even the thief on the cross next to him maligning him, a kind of evil seized my heart. I discovered that day that I had the capacity to hate an innocent man and a sick desire to be a part of making him hurt. It was after I shouted at him that he looked up to the heavens and shouted the words of the psalmist. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I heard him cry out, I was filled with shame. My God, what had we done? My God, what had we done? How easily that streak of cruelty runs through each and every one of us. And I want us to take a look at this big picture that's unfolding here today. Because before Jesus even uttered those words, why have you forsaken me? We need to understand that he had already been betrayed by one of his disciples, by Judas. He had already been disowned by another. Peter had said to someone, I never even knew this man. He had been mocked by the Roman soldiers, beaten by the Roman soldiers. He had been taunted. He had been kicked around. He had been abused. He had been ridiculed. He had gone through this whole horrific ordeal. It wasn't enough that these people just wanted to crucify his body. They wanted to utterly destroy who he was and everything that he stood for. He wasn't feeling just forsaken by God in this moment. Jesus was feeling forsaken by nearly everyone. And it's easy for us today to kind of remove ourselves from the situation and say, well, it was just the Roman soldiers who were doing that, the cold and heartless Roman soldiers, or it was just those hardened criminals that stood next to him or hung next to him on the cross. Those are the ones who were heaping these insults on top of him. But the truth is, it was way more than just those cold and heartless people. It was the religious leaders of the day who were actually leading the charge, leading the rampage in all of this. And some of them, out of a sincere desire to put an end to the heresy that they thought Jesus was teaching. These were men who had given their lives to learning the law and all that it taught. And Jesus came with with a new way of teaching and a new way to express God's kingdom. And they wanted to put an end to him. So it wasn't enough for them that they were just going to end his life. They wanted to put an end to everything that he stood for. They wanted to utterly and completely destroy all that he was and any influence that he had had in the world. But you know what? Even in that, it wasn't even just the religious leaders who were a part of this scene that was unfolding. It was the Jewish people themselves as well that were playing a part in this. And the thing that's kind of ironic to, this, to me about all of this is that this is the same crowd, these are the same Jewish people 
who only a week before had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem and they were singing his praises and they put on a parade for him and they put their coats down on the ground in front of him and they waved palm branches saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet these same people just a week later are now mocking him and taunting him and spitting on him. The mob mentality had kind of taken over. And we like to think We like to remove ourselves from it and like to think that if we were there, we would have responded differently. Surely we wouldn't have been a part of any of that. But honestly, I wonder. Because there is something inside of us, the same way that there was something inside of those people that stood in front of that cross as Jesus was taunted and mocked and crucified. That same streak of humanity runs through all of us. There's a great quote in the book by Adam Hamilton called Final Words, and this is what he says. It has been said that in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, it was not Jesus who was on trial, but humanity. This scene with the passerby hurling insults at Jesus points to something dreadfully wrong with us. Rather than feeling compassion, the passerby found the suffering of this man moved them to cruelty and hate. And it was not simply a problem with the first century Jews who stood at the cross. This scene holds a mirror to our own souls. We're meant to see ourselves in the crowd. And it's not hard to do. The problem is within us. And it begins at a very young age. This wasn't just a problem for first century Jews this streak of hatred and evil that was running through this scenario. I don't want us to remove ourselves from that. The Bible is very clear that evil exists in this world and it's not something that's just out there somewhere. It's something that runs its thread through all of our lives, the cruelty that we are all capable of. I am not separate from this scene that's unfolding. I'm not better educated. I'm not more cultured, I'm not more civilized, I'm not less sinful than anyone else. We each have the capacity to do cruel and hateful things. And I'm sure all of us in this room can remember a time when we did something that we regretted. One of those streaks of cruelty, maybe as a kid in the schoolyard, when you know that that was just wrong what I did to that person. The way that I treated them or the way that I responded to them We all have this streak that goes through us. And like I said, I don't want us to remove ourselves from this scene that's unfolding here because I am just as guilty of forsaking Jesus as those first century Jews were. And it's important for me to recognize that because when I put myself in that crowd, as part of that crowd, then I'm finally prepared to truly let those words that Jesus spoke pierce my heart when he says, why have you forsaken me? Because I recognize that I'm forsaking him too. I am just as capable. I am just as guilty. There's that thread of evil that runs through my heart just like everyone else's. This is an issue with humanity, not just first century Jewish people. And yet, with all of that, Jesus still chose to hang on that cross. He still chose to be there, even though he was God, he could have removed himself from it. He still chose to hang on that cross. Why? To bring redemption to the world. To bring redemption to the, that cruelty and that hatred that runs through each and every one of us. So it's from this vantage point that I want us to look at these words that Jesus spoke today. I want us to understand a little bit more about what these words tell us about who Jesus is and who we are through him. So if you haven't already grabbed your outline out of your program guide, you can do that now. We're going to take a look at that first point. Because Jesus was forsaken by the Father, I can follow someone who understands. I can follow someone who understands. Sometimes we need someone who just gets it, right? We need someone who can relate to us, that they understand where we're coming from. But we all know that we've had experiences with people where you know that like you're trying to connect with them and you are just not on the same page. Clearly we are not clicking, we are not getting it. Uh, My husband and I a couple months ago got a chance to go on a cruise to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. 
And while we were on the cruise, we realized that many of the crew members, um, their first language was not English. And so many of them had been taught phrases to use while they performed their duties, English phrases to use, but apparently hadn't been fully schooled in appropriate times to use those phrases. So one afternoon as I was enjoying the chocolate buffet on the Lido deck, um, I was sitting there, I had finished my dishes, and a gentleman came along to clear my dishes away from me, and so he took my plates, and so I looked at him and I said, thank you. And he looks back at me and he says, love you, and walks away. I was like, love you too, buddy. <laughs> Clearly, that was not exactly what he had intended to communicate, and we were not speaking the same language on this one. We were missing each other. We were not understanding it. He was not getting what I was saying, or I was not getting what he was saying. There was a miscommunication. There was a, a way that we were not understanding one another. We can laugh about things like that. There are times when things like that happen that you have interactions with people that you're like, oh, you just don't get it. And you can laugh and you can walk away. But there are other times when it's really important to us that we have someone who understands, right? You just need someone to understand what you're going through. Just kind of validate, like, I'm not insane for feeling what I'm feeling right now, right? You need someone who gets it with you. And chances are, during the most difficult seasons of your life, the people that have brought you the greatest comfort have been the ones who have walked the same journey that you have, or at least something similar. The people that you feel like you understand what I'm feeling. I don't need all the right answers right here. I just need someone who understands. And I know this has been true in my life. When my husband and I were kind of walking through the journey of infertility, it was so comforting to me to be able to connect with other people who were on the same journey that we were. To not have someone that told us all the things that we were supposed to feel, but someone who could just understand where we were. And there were lots of people who meant well and gave us pieces of advice and said honestly really stupid things. <laughs> not because they were trying to be mean and hateful, but simply because they just didn't get it. They just didn't understand where we were coming from. But the times that I got to connect with someone who got it, man, that brought so much comfort and healing to my soul, even though nothing was really resolved. And I think the same is true for almost any pain that we walk through, right? To know that you have someone that understands, whether you're walking through a, a divorce or an addiction or a loss or anything of that nature, it just helps to know that someone else out there gets it. Someone else understands. And like I said, we don't need someone who understands who can just tell us all the right answers. It's not the right answers that we're looking for. We need someone who knows the frustration of feeling all the things that you're not supposed to feel and understands how to process that. And so when Jesus says these words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think they are so powerful because they resonate down the halls of humanity because we all know that feeling. God, where are you? We get that feeling. <laughs> I know that feeling. When we're saying, God, where are you? Why have you gone silent in the middle of this season of my life? I can't understand where you are in the middle of that. And that's why we can resonate with this phrase so deeply because we understand that Jesus gets it too. Jesus felt the same thing, too. He understands what's going on in our hearts. If you look at Psalm 44, 20 and 21, it says, if we had turned away from worshiping our God or spread our hands in prayer to foreign gods, God surely would have known it, for he knows the secrets of every heart. You can underline the last phrase there, for he knows the secrets of every heart. God knows what's going on inside of us. He knows the secrets inside of our heart, those private places. He gets it. What's happening inside of there? In 1 John 3.20, and that's a little typo in your program guide, sorry about that, not 4.20. In 1 John 3.20, it says, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. I love this verse because you know how there are times that you don't even know what's going on in your own heart? You have this like, oh, I'm just feeling all this stuff and I can't even put words to it. But God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So even in those times when we don't understand what's going on in our very own hearts, God is greater than our hearts and he knows what's happening with us. There's a verse in Romans 8 that says that even when we don't know what words to pray, God's spirit intercedes for us 
on behalf of us to the Father with groans. So even when we don't have words that we know how to express what we're feeling, God himself knows and understands. Hebrews 4.15 says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same temptations we do and yet he did not sin. He understands our weaknesses. He faced the same stuff we went through. He is a God who understands. He's a God who knows us from the inside out. And he knows because he's been through the same stuff that we have. Those times when God has seemed silent and we're saying in our own hearts, God, why have you forsaken me? And even though we may know in our heads that it's not true, that's what our life experience feels like, And it's okay to be honest with God in those moments and say, God, you seem so far away to me right now. Jesus modeled that for us. There's a great reading by Max Licato from um, the final week of Jesus. And this is an excerpt from um, something that he wrote when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think it captures so well this feeling of Jesus feeling alone in this moment and understanding how we feel. And um, just to set the scene here, it's when Jesus was, had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray just before he was arrested and led off to crucifixion. And this is where it picks up. Never has he felt so alone. What must be done, only he can do. An angel can't do it. No angel has the power to break open hell's gates. A man can't do it. A man, no man has the purity to destroy sin's claim. No force on earth can face the force of evil and win except God. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus confesses. His humanity begged to be delivered from what his divinity could see. Jesus, the carpenter, implores. Jesus, the man, peers into the dark pit and begs, can't there be another way? Did he know the answer before he asked the question? Did his human heart hope that his heavenly father had found another way? We don't know. But we do know there was a time when if he could have, he would have turned his back on the whole mess and gone away. But he couldn't. He couldn't because he saw you. Right there in the middle of a world which isn't fair. He saw you cast into a river of life that you didn't request. He saw you betrayed by those you love. He saw you with a body which gets sick and a heart which grows weak. He saw you in your own garden of gnarled trees and sleeping friends. He saw you staring into the pit of your own failures and into the mouth of your own grave. He saw you in your garden of Gethsemane and he didn't want you to be alone. He wanted you to know that he has been there too. He knows what it's like to be plotted against. He knows what it's like to be confused. He knows what it's like to be torn between two desires. He knows what it's like to smell the stench of Satan. And perhaps most of all, he knows what it's like to beg God to change his mind and to hear God say so gently but firmly, no. For that is what God says to Jesus. And Jesus accepts the answer. At some moment during that midnight hour, an angel of mercy comes over the weary body of the man in the garden. And as he stands, the anguish is gone from his eyes. His fist will clench no more. His heart will fight no more. The battle is won. You may have thought it was won on Golgotha. It wasn't. You may have thought that the sign of victory is the empty tomb. It isn't. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the sign of conquest is Jesus at peace in the olive trees. For it was in that garden that he made his decision. He would rather go to hell for you than to go to heaven without you. What an amazing picture of the sacrifice of our God. He didn't want us to be alone. He wanted to know us to know that he's been through it too. And I don't think that we will ever fully understand or comprehend the enormity of that sacrifice and that surrender that Jesus made on our behalf. And that's what brings us to our next point today. That because Jesus was forsaken, I could respond to his sacrifice with worship. I can respond to his sacrifice 
with worship. And I think we need to take a moment this morning and consider the sacrifice that Jesus made and just paint even a tiny little picture of the enormity of what was happening here because there are depths of the holiness and the grace and the mercy and the love of God that our puny little brains will never begin to comprehend. Lengths that he went to that we will never fully understand, but just to paint a little picture of that for you today. I want you to know that Jesus, sometimes we're, we think of him as starting as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus didn't start as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus existed in heaven before coming to earth. He was part of God. And he lived in divinity. He lived in majesty. He lived in holiness. The Bible gives us some pictures of what that throne room looks like where Jesus would have existed. And it's this place of amazing purity. And there's just not even words to describe the beauty and the the purity and the holiness and the splendor of that place. This is where Jesus existed. And he had beings that worshiped him day and night, nonstop, these creatures that surrounded the throne that would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is a place where Jesus existed, where there's no pain and there's no suffering and there's nothing impure There's no tears. There's nothing bad at all in this place. And Jesus said, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave this place of glory and majesty, and I'm going to come to this earth, this broken, messed up planet, and I'm going to live that human experience. I'm going to walk through the joys and the pains of being a human so that I can understand because I want to be a God who understands. I want to be a God who gets it. So he left all of that divinity, walked through this human experience, and then even in this human experience, gave every possible thing that he had to give. Even in this life, after he'd left everything in heaven, even in this life, he poured out His body for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. There was not one more thing that the man had to give that he could have possibly given. This is the sacrifice that Jesus made for me and for you. And when Jesus hung on that cross, it wasn't just the weight of the wood on his shoulders. It was the weight of the sin of humanity on his shoulders. And as he hung on that cross, Jesus, the pure one, pled guilty to every sin ever committed down through the ages. Jesus hung on that cross and was was pleading guilty to murder. Guilty. Incest. Guilty. The Holy One of God pleading guilty to something as vile and disgusting as that. And he's saying, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Rape. Guilty. And with each sin that Jesus pleads guilty to, on our behalf, the distance between Jesus and the Father grows. Lust. Guilty. Pride. Guilty. Gossip, guilty. Lies, guilty. Bitterness, guilty. Anger, guilty. And Jesus pleads guilty to all of it until finally the Father turns his face away and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a tiny picture of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We cannot overstate the enormity of what Jesus did for us in this. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we were bought with a price, and it was no small price. There was a huge amount of pain that was attached to the price that Jesus paid for us. 
And the thing that kind of blows me away is that even in the midst of that pain, Jesus is still crying out to God. Even though his words are saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that he's still holding on because who is he calling out to? My God. He still knows that the father is there somewhere and I like to think of it in terms of a lost child looking for his father. He's crying out, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? The child still knows that the father exists somewhere. He can't see him, he can't feel him, he can't hear him right now, but he knows that his dad exists. He knows that he's gonna go looking for him. And so the child is saying, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? And I think that's kind of what Jesus is crying from this cross. Where are you, God? I'm looking for you. So even in this moment of pain, Jesus is still turning back to his father in an act of worship, really. Say, God, I need to find you in the midst of this. Now, I learned something really interesting about Mark 15, 34, and this is one of those things that I'm like, I don't understand how I never caught this before. But when you look at your Bible and you read Mark 15, 34, there's a little asterisk after that verse. After Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a little asterisk there. And if you read the footnotes at the bottom of your page, it says Psalm 22, 1. And so I flipped over to Psalm 22, 1. And guess what it says in Psalm 22, 1? It says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting scripture as he hangs from the cross. He's quoting this Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 1, and then verse 2 continues to say, why do you remain so distant? Why do you ignore my cries for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. So yes, Jesus is calling out to God in this time of pain, saying, God, I don't know where you are. I can't hear you, I can't feel you, but even in this, this is scripture that Jesus is pointing us back to in the middle of this. And this is the other intriguing thing that I learned about Psalm 22 as I prepared for this message, is that if you look at the caption at the top of Psalm 22, there's a little thing that says, to be sung to the tune of Doe of the Dawn or something to that effect. As most of the psalm means song, so most of the psalms are songs. And so Psalm 22 was a song, and what I learned about this song is that it is a song that the Jewish people would have known. Those who stood at the foot of the cross that day when Jesus was crucified would have known this song. And so when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have been immediately put in mind of Psalm 22 and the rest of the song that follows. It would have been similar to me saying to you today, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Yes, the words stand alone, but when I say those words, you think of the message of the entire song, right? Same deal would have been for Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have immediately thought of not just those words, but the message of the entire psalm. And so when we look at the message of the entire psalm, I get a little excited about this. This is what it says. You continue, Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so distant? Why do you ignore my cries for help? Every day I call to you, you don't answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Psalm 22, 3. Yet you are holy. He turns the corner. Yes, this is a psalm of lament. This is a song crying out of pain and despair. But this is a song that turns the corner back to worshiping our God. The point of this song that Jesus is pointing to people as he pulled himself up in the cross to get these words out of his mouth, what he's pointing people back to is worship and redemption. The point of this song was not just lament, but to point people back to his Father God and the purpose of his redemption and restoration of creation. Is that not amazing? <laughs> I'm blown away by it because if you continue reading in Psalm 22, if you pick up your Bible and continue it, um, verse 24, about halfway through, there's more lament in here in the first half of the psalm, but then in verse um, 24, about halfway through the psalm, the, psalmist conti- the song continues and says this, for he has not ignored 
the suffering of the needy. He has not turned and walked away. He has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you among all the people. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and will return to him. People from every nation will bow down before him, for the Lord is king. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Let the mortals, those who are born to die, bow down in his presence. Future generations will also serve him. Our children will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those yet unborn. They will hear about everything that he has done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it points to this amazing theme of redemption. Is it possible that as Jesus spoke those words, What he was truly trying to communicate to us was not just the pain and the despair that he was in, but that he was trying to communicate to us his trust in the Father, that he knew that God was going to bring something good out of this suffering, that he could still trust in his Father even when God seemed distant. Is it possible that as Jesus hung there breathing his final breaths, that he was thinking about all that his suffering and all that his sacrifice was going to accomplish for future generations, for those yet unborn, as this psalm says, for you and I here in this room today is who that would be talking about. Is it possible that as Jesus hung there and contemplated all that, he was thinking about all that his suffering was going to accomplish for those of us that stand in this room today? Is that the message that Jesus wanted us to hear as he said those words, my God, why have you forsaken me? This honest, gut-wrenching, heartfelt cry of a man who is choosing to worship with all that he has left in him, literally all that he has left in him. This passage just brings me to my knees when I consider it, the magnitude of it. Our God is a God to be praised. Even when we can't see him, even when he doesn't feel close, even when we can't hear him, he is a God who stands alone on the power of his own character. And whether our circumstance points to it or not, he is a God to be praised. And I believe that the truest expressions of faith And the sweetest moments of worship happen in our lives during those times when we declare who God is, even in the midst of our pain, even in those times when we can't see or feel his presence with us. I remember one time I was going through a hard season in life, and I was having a pretty good pity party for myself. And I remember sitting on the bed one day, And I was just crying out to God, like, God, where are you? It was the whole lament thing. God, where are you? This just doesn't seem fair. Why does it have to be like this? I wanted so badly for things to be different, and this is where we are, and I don't understand it, and it's not making any sense, and you're not near to me, and I can't hear you, and I'm just all kinds of frustrated with God. And it was one of those moments where I heard God speak to my heart so clearly and directly. And in the middle of my little pity party, I heard God speak and he said, praise me. And honestly, my first reaction was, are you kidding me? (laughs) For what? Praise you? There's nothing good to be praised right now. Can you believe (laughs) the haughty attitude? And I heard God speak again, praise me. And I realized that in that moment, I had a choice that I needed to make. Was I gonna continue to swirl and all of this despair that I was feeling? Or was I gonna choose to declare what I believed to be true about God, whether I could feel him in that moment or not? Was I gonna obey God and say, okay, I'm gonna praise you even when you seem distant? So I'm like, okay, I'll praise you. But honestly, at that moment, I didn't have words. I didn't have words in me that said good things about God. (laughs) And so I began to sing a song that came to mind. And the song repeated frequently, for you are good, for you are good, for you are good, 
to me, and I started to sing that song. And I have to confess that it was probably the most horrible-sounding song that anyone has ever heard in all their lives, because <laughs> I don't sing well to begin with, and then through all the tears and all the sniffle and junk. But you know what? That moment will be recorded in my personal history as one of the most profound worship experiences I have ever had. I met God in that moment. A God who was bigger than my circumstance. A God whose character was not tied to how I was feeling or where my emotions were swirling, but a God who I could say, you are good. Regardless of what happens around me, I will choose to believe in you and you are good. Worship through tears is a powerful and profound thing. And I think that's precisely what Jesus was doing on the cross when he said these words. He was doing worship through his tears. And so my closing challenge to you today is to consider what are you going to do when you feel forsaken? When you feel like you've been alone or abandoned or God just seems silent, how are you going to choose to respond? Are you going to choose to lean into this God who understands what it feels like to be there? Or are you going to push away? Are you going to choose to worship who God is regardless of what your circumstances say? Or are you going to choose to let your emotions and your circumstances guide your belief about who God is? I hope that you'll lean in. I hope that you'll choose to worship our God because he's a God who deserves to be praised. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing. Our words can't even express the gratitude that wells up from the, the bottom of our hearts about who you are. Your love for us is, is incomprehensible. You've given us every last thing that you had to give. You poured out every ounce of mercy and grace and compassion that we could ever possibly need, and then some. You endured the cross for us. And even in the pain of that, you were still pointing us back to the greatness of our Father. You are holy, (laughs) and you are good. Thank you, Jesus, for wearing flesh for us, for putting on skin and bone so that you can be a God who understands our pain, who gets it with us. And thank you for being a God who actually welcomes the honest cries of our hearts even when they're breaking. And thank you, Jesus, for modeling what it means to worship through pain. And I pray that you teach us here today how to worship with that kind of strength that even when you seem far away, we'll have the faith to know that you're near. Teach us to worship God even through our tears. We declare this morning that we believe in who you are, mighty God. Nothing can ever separate us from your love. Amen. I'm staring at these empty walls, wondering when you'll visit me again. When will you come?
Ooh.